As I mentioned in the Metta course, and as many of you have heard, one or another of us tell the story of the day we first came to look at this facility, um, you know that one of the very persuasive reasons for us ending up deciding to go ahead and buy it all those years ago was that we caught a glimpse of the Barrytown motto on a monument downtown, the Barrytown motto turning out to be tranquil and alert. So when we saw that, we thought, all right, we'll buy the place. Any town with a motto like tranquil and alert should have a meditation center in it. When we first moved in, the facility had most recently been a Catholic novitiate, The original part of the building, the main part of the building with the big pillars, was actually built as a private home. It was a mansion built by somebody named Colonel Gaston, who at one point was the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. And turned out, upon reading the rather slim volume that's the history of the town of Barrie, that Colonel Gaston himself had a personal motto. Colonel Gaston's motto was, You should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. Which made me wonder, rather, how well he might be getting along with his neighbors, who presumably were going around trying to be tranquil and alert. But I think about that because I think in so many ways each of us really does have a kind of personal motto. We have something that expresses what we dedicate our lives to, where our energy goes, what we hold most preciously in a sense, really what centers us, the thing we care about most passionately. That's like our motto. And very often that motto tends to be rather meager in the sense of the extent of our aspiration. It can be very small very limited, very constrained, very timid. So one thing that we we come to see very often in practice is that sense of limitation, that constraint. And it's something that we also learn to dissolve because that also is just conditioned. It's not inherent to our being. I think often of one of my teachers, a Tibetan teacher named Nyoshal Kenrinpoche, who is known as Kempo, who said, and this is a a very, very rough paraphrase, but he basically said one day to a group of us, why is it that your aspiration is so puny? You know, why is it so, so tiny, so small? Why not aspire to be a really free being? Why not aspire to be liberated for the sake of all beings? Why not see your life in a much bigger picture, a much bigger context? What's holding you back? So why not is something that we actually contemplate, we come upon. Why not? What is holding us back? Very often it's largely habit. It's some sense of who we are, what we're capable of, that is extremely conditioned. Once, many years ago, I went to the stress reduction class that John Kabat-Zinn was holding in UMass Medical Center in Worcester. And on this particular day, 
he did an exercise for us, which is a little hard to describe verbally, but he, he took a blackboard up in front of the room, and just in the center part of the blackboard, he drew three rows of three dots each. So right in that little part in the middle, there was a series of nine dots making a box. And then he said, he challenged us, he said, can anyone come up here and take this piece of chalk, drawing only straight lines, only four lines, without retracing a line, manage to connect all of these dots. So one by one, there were maybe 30 people in the class, and then I, one by one, each one of us went up, and we went absolutely crazy trying to connect those dots. We just couldn't do it. I'm talking about stress. You know? <laughs> it's like the stress, the room was vibrating with stress. And then finally, after each of us had been driven to such intense frustration, John came up, and he took the piece of chalk, and he made these very wide, sweeping gestures that took in the whole area bordering that little place in the middle made by the nine dots and managed to do just what he had challenged us to do. He connected all of the dots, drawing only straight lines, only four lines, and not retracing the chalk over the pattern. Like he had never said once, he'd never even implied that the sphere of action we had was limited to what was created by the dots, that we had a struggle in that little itsy space inside, that never Every one of us made that assumption, that that was the extent of the arena of our creativity, of what we could work in, what we could accomplish in. And yet the exercise could only be fulfilled by taking into account that whole huge area around. Amazing assumption that here we are, locked in. And so we in many ways, just the very act of meditation, of meditating, is a challenge to that sense of limitation. Just the fact that we sit down, just the fact that we we have that intention, that motivation, brings us right to that challenge. And then we look, why not? Why not continue to, to open, to expand? to get vaster and vaster in our our sense of aspiration. Because in fact, what we're talking about is not a personal capacity that's limited to us or limited to somebody else excluding us. But it is about us. When we look at a Buddha image or an inspiring person, it is about us, each one of us. So that, in a way, could be seen as the first part of right effort not allowing ourselves to fall into that trap of feeling so confined, so incapable, but continually opening to a new sense of possibility. And then the next part of right effort is sort of the energetic opposite of that, which is surrender. It's recognizing that, yes, things do take time. A process as profound as this, does not happen instantly, sorry to say. Things really take time. That's the truth. And so we need to be patient. We need to allow things to unfold, to realize we're not in control. There are surprises all along the way. 
my first teacher used to use this example. He said, imagine somebody that is trying to split a piece of wood with an axe. And so they hit that piece of wood 99 times. Nothing happens. Then they hit it the 100th time, and the wood just breaks open. Mostly what we do at that moment is we start to contemplate, what did I do differently? I must have been holding the axe differently. My stance must have been different. What was different? That I succeeded, whereas before I failed. But in fact, as this teacher went on in this example, it's not that we are doing something differently, but in fact what's happening is that every single one of those 99 blows weakened the fiber of the wood, and it took that until the hundredth blow could just split it open. And it doesn't feel very good, you know, number 28, number 29, number 30, number 62, number 63. feels like nothing is happening, but something is happening. And I actually take the example to a different place because I think it's, it's more than just the kind of the mechanical act of weakening the fiber of the wood. I think it's the fact that we stay there, do it. You know, that we, it's our endeavor, it's our heartfulness, it's our, it's our completeness of attention, it's our willingness to keep going, not knowing, not being in control and realizing that. It's our willingness to put our heart there. It's our endeavor, our care, our sense of humor, our patience. That is the opening, actually. Whether that piece of wood ever breaks open or not, it doesn't matter. So the real transformation is the transformation within our own hearts. That's what breaks open. And we need to do it, moment after moment. There are a lot of surprises along the way. There's a great mystery along the way. I tell the story sometimes about this time I went to San Francisco and a friend took me to Grace Cathedral where there was a labyrinth, both an indoor labyrinth and an outdoor labyrinth. And the labyrinth is a, a prearranged pattern that you follow along, uh, starting on the edge of it with the goal of getting right into the center, whether it's the center of the rug or the center of the square made outside. So I started indoors, and I just was at the edge, walking, following along the pattern. I'm just walking, walking, and then I was almost at the center. I was so close, when strangely, the pattern took me way out to the edge again. I stopped and I thought, I made a mistake. This is weird. I was almost there. How could that be? That all of a sudden I ended up way out here again. But this isn't like rocket science, you know. It's like I didn't have to make the pattern. It was already there. I just had to follow it along. So I kept going. And strangely enough, having been almost at the center and then having gone way out to the edge, I just kept going and found that I ended up right at the center, right there. I thought, wow, sometimes, you know, you're on your way in and you have to go out for a while before you can go back in all the way. That's just how it is. So then I went outside, and the exact same pattern was engraved on this um, granite. So I began walking and had exactly the same experience. I was walking along, 
was almost in the center, ended up way out on the edge, and I had the same thought. I thought, oh, you made a mistake. And then I thought, didn't this just happen to you five minutes ago? <laughs> didn't you notice that sometimes there's a kind of mystery to this? It's not so rational. It's not so linear. You have to keep going before you actually find out how things might be connected, how they link up, what the relatedness is. And so it is in, in spiritual life, in meditation practice. We have to keep going. Because in many ways, what we're lacking as we judge ourselves, as we feel frustrated, as we have a wonderful experience only to watch it fade, as we have an unwelcome experience only to realize fretfully that we couldn't seem to keep it from coming, as all of that happens, what we forget is that maybe there is a bigger picture. We may not know what the bigger picture is, but if we get quiet, we can sense it. There's a a beautiful quotation from a theologian, Howard Thurman, who said, look at the world with quiet eyes, which I really loved. Just look at the world with quiet eyes. You know how most of us, it's like we walk down the street and it's like, we're like those cartoon characters, you know, our eyes are on springs, you know. Intense, like, what can we get, you know? What can we have? What can we push away? So what happens if we look at the world with quiet eyes? Just that. There's the possibility of, of sensing a much, much bigger picture. When I turned... 40 some years ago, uh, Carol Wilson gave me a book for my birthday. And she, you know, it was all wrapped up and she handed it to me in my house at my party. And I opened it up and it was a book called Zoom, which is also a little difficult to describe verbally, but I'll try. I opened up the book and it turned out there were no words in this book, just pictures. And the first picture I came upon was the picture of a rooster. So I thought, very odd, 40 years old. <laughs> you know, I got a picture book for my 40th birthday from Carol. <laughs> you know, and it's a story about a rooster, very strange. But, you know, there she was, and I was polite. So I turned the page <laughs> and saw that the next page was a picture of children looking through a window at that rooster. So I thought, okay. Now I understand this book. It's a book about children. I turned the page, and I saw a child's hand moving houses around a sandbox. So I thought, oh, now I get it. This is a book about children who are playing with houses and little figures of children and a rooster. That's what it's about. And I turned the page, and that whole scene of the child playing with the houses and the sandbox and all his little toy figures turned out to be on the cover of a book. And the book was being held by a boy who's sitting on an ocean liner. So I thought, okay. (laughs) Now I get it. This is the story of a boy who takes a cruise, and he's holding this book, which happens to have all these previous figures on it, including that rooster. And then I turn the page, and that whole scene of the ocean liner and the boy and his book and, and all those characters is actually a billboard on a bus. So I thought, okay, this is a story about a bus. 
that Carol gave me for my birthday. <laughs> and then I turned the page, and it turned out that whole scene with the bus, with the billboard, which is depicting the ocean liner and the boy in his book and his cover and the whole thing, is a scene on a television screen that's being watched by a cowboy sitting out in the desert in Arizona. And you can tell it's Arizona because this cactus is sitting right next to him. <laughs> so I thought, okay. This is a book about a cowboy who goes off to the desert and somehow has a television set that works out in the desert. And the television set is showing the bus and the ocean liner and the boy and the book cover and the whole thing. And I turn the page and it turns out that that whole scene of the cowboy and his cactus in the desert and the television is a stamp. It's a postage stamp. And the postage stamp is on a letter going to the Solomon Islands. I turn the page and then uh, people on the beach in the Solomon Islands are receiving this postcard with its stamp on it, laden with all of life that has gone before. And that scene is observed from the sky by a pilot who's sitting in a plane and kept turning the page and the, the vista kept changing as the plane kept receding. And finally, I just saw the earth. So I looked up at Carol and I said, I feel like God. So it's actually one of my favorite books. Thank you, Carol. (laughs) If we do look at the world with quiet eyes, this is what we sense. We can't know the whole story. We don't know what the next page will reveal. But there's some feeling that we are a part of a whole, that this incident right now, our frustration, our difficulty, our joy, whatever it is, can be seen in a much, much bigger context. This actually is the vantage point of mindfulness. This is what mindfulness does. Many years ago, I was in Santa Fe, uh, and some friends found out that I had never been to the opera, so they took me to the opera. And we were sitting, Santa Fe, the Santa Fe Opera House at that time was an open-air theater, so that, uh, and you know the, perhaps that the sky in Santa Fe is, has this nature of being really vast and unimpeding, like unimpeded, big, big sky. So we're sitting in the opera house in such a way that I could see the stage, but behind it I could see this really enormous, open, vast, spacious sky. So it was really this funny juxtaposition of seeing these people behaving rather operatically on the stage. And at the same time, there was space. And to see that one didn't, one didn't deny the other, one didn't prevent the other, that really there could be both. In many ways, that is the nature of mindfulness. We practice with that sense of really opening up and expanding our aspiration, challenging our assumptions about ourselves and how limited we are capable how little we are capable of, and and our limitations that hold us back. And at the same time, being true to the fact that this is an unfolding process. It doesn't happen at our command. We have to join the nature of things, the rhythm of change. That life has its own rhythm. Change has its own rhythm. Transformation has its own rhythm. And we have to be present for that. We have to acknowledge that. These two come together, the aspiration and the surrender, in the form of diligence, which is really right effort. I was once with a 
Tibetan teacher in Nepal, and somebody came in to see him, and they said, you know, I hear all of these stories like, you know, 10,000 people gathered around the Buddha, and the Buddha said hello, and everybody got enlightened. And he said, I feel really discouraged. You know, this is terrible hearing stories like that. And, And the teacher said in response, well, if you really want to have faith, you have to have your faith rest upon diligence. Because the whole purpose of the teaching is not to be something to be admired from afar. You know, we don't say, wonderful, you know, the Buddha got enlightened perhaps 2,500 years ago sitting under a tree, or great beings can do great things, but what about me? The whole nature, the whole tone of the teachings is an invitation to immerse ourselves, to take a risk, to see for ourselves what might be true to see what we might be capable of. It's not about somebody else, it's about ourselves. It's about testing it, it's about exploring it. And so, in order to put something into practice in that way, we have to do it moment by moment. Otherwise, it's like a story we tell. When I first went to India in 1970, I had been a student at the State University of New York at Buffalo, and it studied some Asian philosophy, that's where I first heard about Buddhism, was in, in a college class. And for many reasons, when the opportunity came through, you might call it their junior year abroad program, I, I went to India to study Buddhism, to actually learn how to meditate, which was my very fervent wish, was to learn how to meditate. I also had certain feelings that I really understood this so well. You know, after all, I'd done term papers on karma and, you know, had, had midterm exams on abstruse principles of Buddhism and, you know, about pleasure and pain and all of that. And I thought, oh, yeah, I really understand this. And then I got to India and I began practicing, and it took maybe five minutes when I saw, I don't understand this at all. <laughs> you know, there's such a huge gulf between thinking about something and assuming a sense of mastery because we can think about it or articulate it well and bringing it to life. Those are two very different things. There's a teaching which we've either talked about directly or alluded to uh, of the Buddhas when he talked about what is called the law of dependent origination, which is like the arising of the universe, our own personal universe. How do we experience life? He talked about how we experience life through seeing and hearing and tasting and touching and smelling and through what's called the mind or emotion, feeling, image, thought. And how each one of those moments of contact we tend to know as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And how our, the teaching goes on to talk about how our condition tendency is that when that experience, whether it's a sight or a sound or whatever, is pleasant, we tend to grasp, we tend to cling, so that we become fearful. What if it changes? I have to hold on. We become guarded. And really try to clutch that pleasant object. When that object, whatever it is, is, is painful, we tend to recoil in fear or get very angry, as though we should have been able to stop it. We should have been able to prevent it. We feel humiliated. We feel ashamed because there's unhappiness, because there's suffering. We feel aggrieved, angry, because there's suffering. And when that 
object, whatever it is, is neutral, we tend to go to sleep. It's just not riveting enough to keep us awake. We space out, we get diluted. So this, in the Buddhist teaching, is the core of dependent origination. And he goes on to say that we have the potential through being aware and being compassionate, we have the potential to experience the pleasure of life fully, completely, without adding on that extra thing of trying to keep change from happening, trying to keep everything under our control. And we have the capacity to experience pain fully without adding that extra thing of striking out against it, saying, I should have been able to stop this. Not adding the bitterness and the recoil and the humiliation to the pain. And we have the capacity to experience neutral objects fully, to actually wake up, to be connected rather than disconnected, rather than fragmented and apart. So this is the, it's like the um, core of his liberation teaching for daily life. We experience these things, and we can really be different in our response to them. It's not that life flattens out, and that we enter this kind of gray, amorphous blob where there's no feeling. But we have the potential not to react to it in the same old way. So I was quite familiar with this teaching from Buffalo and, and my studies in Buffalo. So there I was sitting in my first meditation retreat. And on about the third day, the teacher gave, a, I mean, this was really a, disservice to the teaching about dependent origination. He gave a much more elaborate description of it. And so he would be talking about dependent origination, which is basically what I said. And I would be sitting there having this amazing inner dialogue, which went something like, boy, this is such an incredible teaching. I feel so inspired by this stuff. I must have been a Buddhist in a previous life because, you know, here I am and, you know, I'm not that experienced. But as soon as I heard about it, I just knew it was true. If only I could get rid of this knee pain, I know I could get enlightened. You know? And then the teacher would go on and describe some other element about how it could be seeing or hearing or tasting or touching or feeling and the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutrality. And right there and feeling it, we can be bound or we can be free. And I would think, wow, that's so incredible. I wonder if everyone else is as inspired by this as I am. I've just like, I've never felt so at home, so completely at home in, in a worldview before. This is so great. If only I could get rid of this knee pain. You know, I know it wouldn't take long to get enlightened. You know, this inspired, I could probably get enlightened in nine more days, but, you know, I just can't seem to get rid of this knee pain. And, and the teacher would go on, and I would go on, and I would think, well, I know what I'll do. I'll go to that yoga ashram I heard about in South India, and I'll really stretch out my body. And that way, you know, I'll come back here in six months, I will have no pain, I'll get enlightened within ten days, and I can go home. And it took me quite a long time to realize that what this teacher was talking about, and in fact what I came to know the Buddha was talking about, was my knee pain. He was an experience right in this moment, touch sensation, very unpleasant, very painful, How was I relating to it? Right there. Not to deny the pain, not to say it was something that I needed to pretend wasn't there. But what was the heart space with which I was relating to it? What did I think of myself because of it? How much was I judging myself or denigrating myself because I was in pain? 
How much was I assuming the pain was only going to get worse? What was going on right in that moment, right there, is bondage or freedom? Not to trade in one's experience for something else, something better. Not to wait for the next glorious experience to come along. Right there. How are we? This is how we can see mindfulness, which is considered not only a path to freedom of mind, but actually an expression of the deepest freedom of mind with whatever our experience is, right here and now. And we do that moment after moment. Otherwise it is, it's like a story we tell about how great it would be or whatever. And one image, often in in teachings like Buddhism, the images are extremely simple. They said at one point uh, in the text that Every time the Buddha spoke, he would try to speak so simply that even a seven-year-old could understand him. And perhaps partly as a consequence of that, it's also said he had many fully enlightened seven-year-old disciples. (laughs) You know, so sometimes what I think we all need is to recover that seven-year-old inside of us who can be curious and interested and full of wonderment and exploration. So here's a simple example from the Buddha. This is also a, a very gross paraphrase. He said something like, the mind will get filled with qualities like awareness and loving kindness moment after moment, the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. That's how it happens, is moment after moment. And even though that example is rather simple, as soon as I heard it, it was very profound for me. Because as soon as I heard it, I saw myself standing by that bucket doing one of two things. The first was just standing there, doing nothing, glorying in the fantasy of my eventual enlightenment. Like, isn't it going to be wonderful? You know, being fully enlightened, back in Buffalo. You know, so happy and so serene. And Then I'll go to New York, and I'll be enlightened there, too. Um, You know, and just, just lost in the fantasy, without having the the patience and the humility, the diligence to just add the very next drop, which is what needs to happen. And then the other image I got was to see myself standing by that bucket, kind of peering in it and going, ooh, it's really kind of empty in there. This is never going to get filled. And again, not doing what actually needed to be done, which was using that moment to add a drop of mindfulness of loving kindness. That's the only way it will happen. That's the only way it's real. Is moment after moment. It's drop by drop. That's how it happens. That's how freedom happens. We have to transform our tendency to theorize into the heartfulness that allows us to say, okay, I'm going to use this very experience. I'm going to add a drop right now. And since I first heard that example and saw those two images in my mind, I've added another one, which is basically that of comparison. I could just imagine myself standing by that bucket and completely ignoring it to look over into someone else's bucket and kind of say, oh, how are they doing over there? I don't know, it's a little fuller, it's a little emptier. And so the challenge is to come back. Come back to our own experience. What can we do right now? 
for most of us, for the ability to, to have that kind of, of inspiration, to say, okay, this very experience, how can I use this in the deepening of my love, my compassion, my wisdom? For most of us, the practical reality of that is that it means we need to try to find some time each day that we are dedicating, dedicating to bringing these values to life. And so in the, it's almost like a um, secret oath that every meditation teacher has to take, where at the end of a retreat they say, I really urge you to sit every day. So this is the sit every day part of the talk. <laughs> Partly because we do so strongly have that tendency to fly off into fantasy, into telling that story, into judging ourselves. We need some time where we are just putting it into practice. It's very difficult in daily life to actually find the time to do that. But as one of my teachers once said, the most important Part of the sitting practice is the moment you sit down. Because that's the moment when you are saying, I really care about myself enough to do this. I care about my values enough to do this. This is what I cherish. It's when we are aligning ourselves with that vision of possibility, when we're opening up our sense of aspiration. That's the moment. Whatever happens in that sitting, it's a mystery. Who knows whether this is blow 28 or 280 or 2080. Who knows? We just have to do it. Because it's not what happens. It's our willingness to try to explore, to examine. That's the transformation. Our willingness to forgive ourselves. Our willingness to have compassion for ourselves. That's the transformation not what happens. But we are so object-oriented, we're so content-oriented in this society. And in a way, it's because we're so, maybe because we're so verbal, which you might have experienced today. (laughs) Because these are the things we can measure, these are the things we can describe. This is what we could put words to. I fell asleep when I meditated, or I levitated when I meditated. That's what we can say. But it's so hard to find the words to say, I was more patient with the stuff that came up in my mind. It doesn't quite have the drama, you know, or the intensity. But really, that's where the transformation happens. How are we relating to what's going on? And so it doesn't matter if what happens as you sit is challenging, if it's restlessness, if it's boredom, if it's sleepiness if it's knee pain even, how are you relating to it? And this is very difficult. When I was living in India, I wasn't always on intensive retreats. Sometimes I was just living there. And it was in many ways difficult for me to maintain a daily sitting practice even there. Largely because of that habit of self-judgment, so that when... I sat down and things felt really good. I was concentrated. I was serene. I was relaxed. I'd think, fantastic, you know? 
I'm on the verge of enlightenment, and I'm going to live here forever. But when things were difficult, when I sat and I was bored or restless or had physical pain, I would feel quite defeated by it. I would judge it. I would judge myself quite harshly, and I would feel defeated, and I would just stop. I would give up. So I finally went to one of my teachers, Manindra, describing this pattern. And he looked at me and he said, for you, I have one piece of advice. He said, put your body there. He said, that's your job. He said, just put your body there every day. Sometimes it will feel one way. Sometimes it will feel another way. You don't know. It's like being in that labyrinth. You just have to put your body there. And it's like standing behind your commitment or what your devotion is, what you really care about, even for a few minutes. My first teacher said, sit for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, which is wonderful if you can do it. It's unlikely, really, in a busy life with a lot of responsibility. And what I genuinely believe, um, not just saying it you know, as consolation, but what I definitely, really genuinely believe is that the most important thing is the everydayness of it. There's something about that moment of getting out of our heads, sitting down, being challenged in a much deeper way than giving a lecture on dependent origination, pleasure and pain and so on, to really just put it into practice. Even if it's 15 minutes, it's really worth doing. There's something about the everydayness of it that's very valuable. The problem with 15 minutes is that it's usually a rather disruptive 15 minutes. Most people will experience that the first little chunk of daily life sitting is a huge amount of thinking. You know, I forgot to call so-and-so, and I have to do this, and surely that is the loudest refrigerator in the world, and I have to call the repair person as soon as I get up, and maybe I'll get up now and I'll make the call because I can't practice with that sound. And You know, and there's, there's even a benefit to that. It's just like having that pour off in those first, let's say, 10 minutes is a way of de-stressing. But if you have the opportunity to practice beyond that, then you can go through that phase and get the benefit of what might come next, perhaps some deeper quiet. But to practice every day, it might be sitting, it might be walking, something that, that really is an expression of that dedication. And to do it as much as possible without judgment. Because we don't know. One of my favorite stories of not knowing comes from this time when I was teaching loving-kindness practice in uh, Oakland, California. One of my favorite things to do is teach in the cities of this country. Um, these days especially New York, but, but many cities. And I was teaching a non-residential retreat in Oakland, California. The reason I like it so much is because when it comes time for the walking period, we go out on the streets, and that's where we are. So this particular facility was right across the street from an Amtrak station, and many of the students would go out and do the walking on the Amtrak station of metta practice, just repeating silently the phrases of loving kindness, you know, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, and 
And um, this one woman came back in after the walking period quite, um, shaken's not exactly the right word, but quite moved. And she came up to me and she said, I just had the most amazing experience. She said, I was standing on the platform and just doing the metta phrases when this train pulled into the platform and this guy got off the train, so I began offering the phrases to him, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. And she said, and then I thought, I don't really like him. You know, I don't like what he's wearing. He looks really uptight. You know, I just don't like his look. I don't like him. And then she felt terrible. She thought, oh, I am the worst. You know, here I am. I'm supposed to be loving. I'm supposed to be compassionate. I don't really like this guy. And, you know, I'm like the biggest failure. And then, amazingly enough, the man walked up to her and he said, I've never done anything like this before in my life. And I can hardly believe I'm even doing it now. But I'd like to ask you to pray for me. He said, I'm about to go into this really difficult situation in my life, and um, you just seem to have this kind of loving aura, and it would mean something to me if I felt you were praying for me. So then she came back in, (laughs) and she said something like, I guess I wasn't failing. (laughs) You know, we never know. If we can, it's almost like redefining our sense of integrity or purpose. You know, back to the intention of our hearts, back to the persistence, the diligence of our effort, and really rest there, rather than in what seems to be the immediate result. It would be a lot truer, and we'd be a lot happier. So we need to keep practicing, because it's like Zoom, you know? There is a bigger picture that sometimes we do lose sight of, And we also practice in the activities of daily life. It's so interesting to leave a retreat. You may have experienced this already a little bit this afternoon, but sometimes when I sit here as a a yogi, a meditator, and I get into my car at the end, I start to drive off, I watch my hand reach out to turn on the radio. And it's so interesting because, in fact, the truth is, at that moment, I don't want to really listen to music, and I don't want to hear the news. It's just that I'm no longer in silence. I'm no longer formally on retreat, and so doing nothing doesn't seem okay. I feel like I have to fill in the space somehow with stuff. And if I'm mindful, it's like I can watch my hand go out, and I can just relax. It's interesting to look at how we fill up the moments of our day when we're waiting, when we're standing in line, when we're in the subway, when we're driving. And imagine recapturing all of those moments rather than feeling we need to just spin out. It's quite incredible what we discover as we learn to make a friend of silence, to come back to our experience, to look at the world with quiet eyes, not to be in this frenzy all of the time of doing. And we might have very busy lives anyway. But there are moments. It's like there's a porousness to our day if we actually look. 
And so to come back to our own experience, just to be at ease with what's happening, it's really very special. And we look at how we relate to others. We look at our intention throughout the day. We look at those times we choose to speak. We look at those times we choose not to say anything. We look at those times that we're truthful. We look at those times we're not so truthful. Again, it's not with a a self-punishing air, but because spirituality is not something that can be cut off. It's not some little compartment that we can enjoy for that 15 or 20 minute or hour long period in the morning and in the evening. It really is about how we live. And so our lives need to be seamless. Otherwise we're just going around in circles. And so we look with some degree of candor at how much we are bringing out these values into our lives. And that is the basic teaching of morality, or sila as it's known in, in Pali. The precepts as the Buddha taught for, for daily life are things like taking a precept not to kill, to develop a reverence for life, not to steal, to have a sense of contentment, not taking that which hasn't been offered, not to commit sexual misconduct, not to use our sexual energy in a way that causes harm to ourselves or to others, not lying, being truthful, not taking intoxicants that cloud the mind, that cause heedlessness. It's really, it's an amazing experiment just to look at our lives in that way, not as something fixed. We're not in the center of that blackboard. We're capable of so much more than we often think we are. And so to look, really to examine, to use awareness, to use compassion. In the right spirit, the Buddha said, I think, quite beautifully, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. And so what is the basis of, of this kind of morality? It's a tremendous love and compassion for ourselves, and it's also an understanding that we are embedded in a whole, that we do not live separate or apart, that what we do matters, because we are all so connected. And we can view our lives as part of a whole in a very different way. It has nothing to do with rules and regs or or feeling sanctions. It's how we understand our lives to, to be apart, to be intertwined. I had this funny experience a few years ago when one winter I was really, really sick. I was with some of you then, off and on, and I was just really sick. I had bronchitis, which kept coming back and coming back and coming back. and um, It was really a, a really difficult winter. And finally... I started to get better. I was living in New York City. Um, and one day I was walking down the street when I heard this woman's voice saying, I was really, really sick this winter. 
And I was naturally intrigued, having been so sick myself. So I turned around, and this woman was talking to a street person. And she was giving him a bunch of money. And she said, I was really, really sick this winter. I had pneumonia several times, and I just couldn't get better. But now I am finally starting to recover, and I just wanted to share the joy. She gave him this whole bunch of money. And I thought, wow, that's so incredible. You know, I was really sick this winter too. But somehow the fact that this person on the street, that his life had something to do with me, and that impulse to share the joy didn't really come up in me. So then I thought, well, should I turn around and give him some more money, you know? Should I say, well, hey, I was really sick too, you know? Well, I thought, no. It's not the action so much as the vision. It's the understanding that, yes, this person's life has something to do with me. All lives have something to do with us. We are all a part of some greater set of connections. And so we live in a way as best we can to try to honor that rather than feel so separate and so cut off. We pay attention to everything that we do, how we speak, how we act. With this spirit of compassion for ourselves, care for ourselves, and recognition or understanding of how connected we actually all are. So I am going to close with a poem uh, by a woman named Naomi Shihab Nye. The collection of poems is a book called Words Under the Words. And it's a poem that I think really beautifully expresses both this moment-to-moment sense of bringing the practice alive and also the, the simplicity of it in a sense, the lack of grandiosity in its genuine manifestation. <clears throat> the poem is called Famous. And she writes, The river is famous to the fish. The loud voice is famous to silence, which knew it would inherit the earth before anybody said so. The cat sleeping on the fence is famous to the birds, watching him from the birdhouse. The tear is famous briefly to the cheek. The idea you carry close to your bosom is famous to your bosom. The boot is famous to the earth, more famous than the dress shoe, which is famous only to floors. The bent photograph is famous to the one who carries it, and not at all famous to the one who is pictured. I want to be famous to shuffling men, who smile while crossing streets, sticky children in grocery lines, famous as the one who smiled back. I want to be famous in the way a pulley is famous, or a buttonhole, not because it did anything spectacular, but because it never forgot what it could do. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.ghostbusters.org slash donate.